Well, this morning, not surprisingly, we're continuing with Jesus in Gethsemane. And, you know, it, I must say this. Uh, it surprises, well, in one way I am surprised, and in another way I'm not surprised that we've spent this much time in Gethsemane. You know, when, when we teach or preach, especially teach the Word of God, because we have a lot more freedom to develop and to move along at a different pace than we do perhaps on Sunday mornings. We don't enter any particular passage with a preconceived judgment of how much content and time. We have a notion of something, but we don't make it a hard and fast rule, okay, I will only spend one Sunday on this, and et cetera, et cetera. And so we come to various times in the life, for instance, of the Lord Jesus, and this pertains to any scripture that we would be speaking about. And sometimes, as you see, we move through various parts of scripture very quickly quickly in relation to how I normally teach. And then sometimes we come to a screeching halt and a crawl almost through other times in other portions of Scripture. Why is that? It has only one reason. I just, this is how I have felt to be led by the Holy Spirit. And so we've come to a crawl, if you would, in Gethsemane. It's only a few verses, but yet this event, and I think and I'm hoping that you're getting this because I really believe this is the burden of the Lord for us. This event in the life of Jesus is absolutely the hub, the turning point the fulcrum, the crescendo of why he has come. I have come to do the will of my Father. And here we have in Gethsemane the greatest cosmic spiritual battle of all time. When the strength and power of man's will as animated and moved along by Satan meets the strength and power of God's will. You remember the song, some of you are old enough to remember that something's got to give, something's got to give. When an immovable Object meets an irresistible force. Something's got to give. Something's got to give. Something's got to give. And here we have this, this titanic battle. And we have been moving forward to coming to the essence of it. And this morning, we come to the essence of this battle, the essence of it. And so you remember last week, we began speaking about the prayer of Jesus and we broke it down into four parts. Last week, which is the most crucial aspect of the prayer, and this is the most crucial aspect of any and every prayer that we ever pray. Every prayer 
that we ever pray for whatever reason, under whatever circumstance, this is the most crucial issue. When Jesus begins this prayer, how? My Father, my Father. If you weren't here last week, get the CD or listen online, however you do it. And so this morning, we proceed from what does it mean for Jesus and for us? What does it look like? What is the effect of my father, my father? You see what we're talking about here. My father is the doorway, if you would, into the very presence and purpose and will of God. And the rest of the prayer is as a consequence of an elaboration of a revelation of what those two words mean to Jesus and hopefully to us. So this morning in Matthew 26, verse 39, A. A means the first part of the verse. If I break it up, A, B, C, I think you understand that. We're going to talk about the condition. Remember last week, the address. Jesus addresses God, my Father. This morning, the condition. And he says this, my Father, if it be possible, if you were willing, if everything is possible, everything is possible for you. You notice I put a couple of the other ways of, of saying the same thing that Mark registers and Luke registers within the context of this particular verse. Jesus begins to pray. And let's remember, as he begins to pray, the humanity of the Son of God. You see how I put it? The humanity of the Son of God. Because the Son of God is the person of the Trinity who is experiencing our humanity. Correct? The humanity of the Son of God, as Jesus begins to pray, is engulfed, is engulfed with horror and terror. Everything now has rushed upon him as he begins this prayer. And right now, he is now in the thick of this greatest of all battles. And Jesus asks this in the garden. My father. Is the cross the only way to redeem your people from the curse. Due to their sin. Is this the only way. Is this the only way. So is Jesus asking for God to change his mind. No, Jesus is not asking for something for himself. He's asking to make sure for clarification that what he is about to submit to is, in fact, what he already knows. He's asking for clarification that what he is about to submit to is, in fact, 
what he already knows. You remember, he's entered the garden, and he's already, he's lived his entire life. And especially we see this in, 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 in chapter 2 of Luke. When Jesus, 12 years old, is in the Father's house, did you not know that I must be about my Father's business, even as a 12-year-old boy? And throughout his ministry, and he says this in John 10, 15, I know the Father. In other words, I know him personally. I relate to him. I have fellowship with him. Therefore, I know his will inside and out for me. I know it absolutely. And Jesus knows the Father's will for him perfectly. And I lay down my life for the sheep. What is that a reference to? The cross. I know. I know. I know it. And every heartbeat, every step, every word, every breath, every blink of this man's eye is about the cross, is about the fulfillment of the Father's will. Everything. Everything is about one thing. Fulfilling the will of the Father to the glory of the Father at the cross. Can you say amen? Everything. Every decision, every motive, every word, every thought, every action. Where he goes, where he doesn't go, what he does, what he doesn't do. Everything is about this. We typically don't think of Jesus this way, but isn't this the way we ought to? And hopefully that's instructive for me and for you. You see, this is the reason why Jesus in Luke 9, 53, he set his face toward Jerusalem like flint. I am determined to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because the Father's will is fulfilled in a crescendoing, culminating way in Jerusalem at the cross. And why is he going to go? You know that great word, 1 John 2, 2, Romans 3, 25. It's also in Hebrews and Galatians. I made a mistake there. It's in Roman, 1 John 4, and then I can't remember the other place. Four references. There it goes. Because Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation is the word that has to do with the mercy seat, the hillist or the hilosmos, the Greek for the mercy seat, the lid over the Ark of the Covenant upon which the blood was sprinkled seven times once a year on the Day of Atonement by the high priest, Leviticus 16. And as a result of the sprinkling of that blood once a year, seven times, as a result of that, the high priest comes out of the temple out of the Holy of Holies, back to the people. And he blesses the people. Remember in Numbers 6, 24 to 26, he blesses the people. And as a result of the propitiatory sacrifice, the atoning death sacrifice of Jesus, therefore our sins are expiated. Mm-hmm. 
as a result of the shedding of the blood of Jesus, our sins are put away from us. So you see that the one goat in Leviticus 16 has the throat slit for the blood. The other goat, the high priest lays his hands on the goat, confesses all the sin of the people for that year, and then they drive that goat into the wilderness where it will die. You have the two effects of the death of Jesus. First John 1, 7, the death of Jesus, quote, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. Jesus knows this. He knows it. And so he enters the garden ready to do the Father's will. So in this question, are we sure about the cross? Is Jesus' faith and trust wavering? Is it wavering? No, no. You see, this is a faith-filled petition. I've heard several comments over the years. You know how you hear people preach or teach or reference certain times. And it's ridiculous what they say. This is a faith-filled petition of the Son of God that simply desired to know the Father's will no matter what the cost. And even with the horror and the terror that was gripping his soul, Jesus was determined, determined to deny the normal feelings of his humanity in preference for his father's will. Correct? So, what is the petition, Father? If it's possible. What's the petition specifically? Verse 39b. What? What is possible? Father, let, let me clarify this. Let me make sure. I know it, but let me make sure of it. Are you with me? And so what is it? If it's possible, what? Remove or let this cup pass from me. Now, you remember what the cup was. We dealt with that a while back. The cup is a reference to the Old Testament. Not every cup in the Old Testament is this way. But there are certain references in the Old Testament that have to do with the cup of wrath that Jesus is to drink. And we've already dealt with that. Isaiah fifty-one seventeen. It is the cup of God's wrath. You see, Jesus came into the world as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where, we, where do we read those words? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1 verse 29 and it's repeated in verse 36. But you see, the cost of this, Jesus knows it throughout the ministry. But the closer he gets to the cost, the more crushing it becomes to his heart and his mind and his soul. Have you ever noticed this? Think back years ago. Years ago for some of you. Maybe for all of us. There are not too many young people in here. And you know that Let's say May 24th is the final exam, the final exam. And so the whole school year, if you had any sense, you notice I say if, should have been lived 
and all the homework and the study and the reading and the note-taking and the whatever should have been obviously directed toward the fulfillment, the revelation of its good on that day of the final exam. Correct? And so we know about the final exam, but, you know, it's way off. And so we know it, but, but now it's April. When I was a school teacher, taught English. And the closer we came to the final exam, the more, Adrian, the more the questions were this. Mr. Davidson, will this be on the final exam? Now, how many of you know what I'm talking about? You see, that, Andy, that wasn't the question in December. (laughs) You see, the final exam is miles away. We'll never get there. But the closer, the greater the realization. That's Jesus. And now he has come to God's final exam. This is the exam that will determine the fate and the future of all creation. Right here, right on this spot, is the exam that will determine the fate and the future of all, not only humanity, I've heard people say, of all creation. Jesus has come and has lived his life day by day, step by step, moment by moment. Prepared for this moment, this moment, this moment where we are right now in Gethsemane. The pivot of all history rests right now. I can imagine, if you'll allow me to imagine a little bit, the angels in heaven watching, seeing this man enter the garden and seeing him begin to collapse upon the ground and get up and fall again and get up and falling upon the ground, falling, breathing, (gasps) drops of blood coming from his head. As if he is wrestling the greatest demon that ever was to be wrestled. The will of a man. And you thought it was Satan. The will of a man. And you thought I was thinking about Satan. The human will. And I can imagine the angels holding their breath. Holding their breath. Let this cup pass from me. To drink this cup meant that Jesus would have to take the sinless, perfect man, would have to carry onto his shoulders. The pollution, the putrefaction, the filth, the slime, the rebellion, the lawlessness of all of our sin. 
which was so antithetical to his very holy nature that he would be taking to himself the most unholy thing of all. Think about what would be the worst circumstance you could submit to. Perhaps lying down in a bed of roaches. There's something worse than that? (laughs) But you understand what it is. And can you imagine how your flesh would crawl? Think of the worst thing you could submit to. And how your flesh would crawl with horror. Oh, don't do that to me. I dare say if there was one roach right now flying around in this room, we wouldn't be sitting here like this. You know, and there it goes. You know, I mean, we would have bedlam in this class. You would see people take a step and move faster than lightning bolts. There are, you know, I wish she were on my race team, right? Who you'd run the one hundred yard dash like that, sister, brother? We'd have won that thing hands down. By the time the sound on the gun stopped, we were already at the end. <laughs> Horrible. And yet this is what he's faced with. You see, to us, it doesn't ring a bell as it should. Why? Because we are too much in touch with the normality of our sin rather than the absolute unnaturalness of what sin is to God. We don't crawl when we think of Jesus becoming our sin bearer. Our flesh should crawl. (gasps) Can you imagine someone lying in a bed of roaches and they're crawling in his mouth and in his ears? (gasps) We don't think that way about sin because we're not enough in touch with what sin is to God. I number myself in this group, not only you. And one of the most needful petitions we need to make of God is this. Father, cause me by your spirit to in a greater way, with greater consistency, understand and even As much as I can take it, give me the experience of what my sin is to you. What my sin is to you. You see, we can sin with, okay, I did something wrong. Okay, it doesn't, you know, unless it's a big one. Oh, the big ones. But we can sin, thought, word, and deed, and yet it just roll off us. And yet, even one sin of one person, one time, would have caused Jesus the same horror as the accumulated sin of all his people throughout the entire history of his people on earth. We have a cavalier understanding and conception of sin, don't we? Am I right? Yes. 
we have a cavalier, you know. It's just the way I am. It's just humanity. We need to start praying a little differently about experiencing something of what that man experienced that caused him in part to be collapsing for three hours. And he also knew by drinking the cup, he'd be drinking the wrath of God. He would be tasting. He, he, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And he was the life, and the life was the light of man. Correct? Or is that, I'll get it backwards sometime, but get it back. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When he says life, what does he mean? He means specifically the very holy, eternal life, self-existence of this God. He just doesn't mean living, breathing. He's talking about the very essence, the very essence of who this self-existent I am is. He is in himself life, correct? And to experience anything that would in any way diminish, alter, manipulate in any way to any extent to diminish it is absolutely a horror to him because it would be totally antithetical to the self-existent nature of this holy God. Life. And yet, he has to experience what? Not only a diminution of life, he has to experience the absolute blackness and terribleness of death itself. You see, the curse of sin is death. Therefore, death came into all the world. Remember in Romans chapter 5. And because all humanity came into a death relationship, if you would, to God, and the entire context, if you would, and spiritual atmosphere of all humanity for all time upon this present earth is an atmosphere of death. And that's the cause and the precipitating, continuing power of sin. No person who is of death can do anything else but sin. Sin, death came into the world by sin, and then death permeated everything. And as a result of death permeating absolutely everything of this creation, sin began to be the common denominator. Correct? He has to take all of this into himself. And for the first time, he has to experience a severance. A severance of what it means to experience our death. No wonder Jesus said, if you are willing, take this cup from me. So he asks the question, Father, if it's possible, is it possible? Is it possible that 
Your redemptive plan can be carried out by me in any other way. But you see, Jesus knows the answer, Anne, doesn't he? Al, doesn't he know the answer already? Kit, doesn't he know all that? Doesn't he know? How many of you think he doesn't know the answer? He already knows the answer. How many of us, when we pray for something pretty well, often we already know the answer? But our prayer time shouldn't be trying to wrestle with God to get another answer. It should be in submitting ourselves to God. We may need clarification. That's true. But too often we already know the answer. I hear people say, oh, I'm going to pray about that. You already know the answer. Pray not that we get another answer, but that we may be made conform to the will of God. I already know the answer, Frank. I knew the answer. Jesus knows the answer. No wonder he prayed. If there's any other way, this divine wrestling match, but then, 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 the glory of God. Here it is. This is what Jesus is here for. Verse 39, verse C. Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And again, the second time he went away and he prayed, my Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. I'll do it. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time. This is a three-hour ordeal for him, saying the same words again. May your will be done, yet not my will, but yours be done. In the face of this, Jesus says what? Father, would you clarify it? If it's possible, I don't want to drink this cup. But if it's not possible, what? I will drink it. I will drink it. Listen to what Hebrews 5, 7 says about Jesus' struggle in the garden. He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries. This is not a man who was just whispering prayers. This is a man whose voice is being loudly, maybe screaming, I don't know, but loudly praying to God, loudly crying out to his father, loud cries with tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. We don't normally see Jesus like this, do we? As I said before, if you have a painting or a picture of that foolishness of Jesus having his hand on a rock with a light, please throw it away. No, no, no. It's no good. It's no good. It has nothing to do with Gethsemane. This man 
is in a wrestling match, breathing awkwardly, falling to the ground, collapsing, sweating drops of blood. Remember Luke 22? Crying out with loud cries, with tears. What a wrestling. And for whom is he wrestling? On whose behalf is he wrestling? Whose fault is it that he's there? Whose fault? My fault. And your fault. So the one man, Adam, in the garden who is tempted to partake of the fruit of the tree succumbs and he disobeys. And because of that one disobedience, the Son of God must go through what he goes through in order for God to have a people in my image, our image according to our likeness. You see, Jesus, when he's praying, he knows this prophecy from Isaiah 53. Let me read it to you, 4 through 11. Surely Jesus, he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. He was stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He was put he has put him to grief. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So here is the place of the battle. And the winning of the battle. Jesus says what? I'm going to do the will of the Father. You see, the quintessential will of God for his children is obedience to his will. Amen? That's the quintessential revelation that we are children of God. Obedience. For us, obedience to what? The will of God. Where is the will of God displayed? Throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. Where in the Old Testament? Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commandments are as viable and alive and applicable to us in this day as they are to every believer in every day. Well, I thought Galatians, what is it, 5, 16 says, you know, we're free from the law. 
we're free from being under the burden and curse of the law as a disobedient people. And now we are free because the law has, in that sense, to obey the law within our own strength. Because now the lawgiver himself, the Holy Spirit, the lawgiver himself, the Holy Spirit, now lives where? In me. And now the law is now in me as I have been reconstituted in Christ with the nature of God himself, the mind of Christ. Correct? The new heart. A new heart of the law for the law. And then there's so much more. If you want to get a view of the law of God, we're going to have to teach this one day. Read Psalm 119. And the law of God, the word of God, has eight different descriptives. And you see what the law is to God. To God. So may I say this? Be very careful if you hear anyone teach that the law is no longer applicable to us as a living relational activity. Amen? Correct? We are God's people. And the only one way to image this God, there's only one way. There was only one way for Jesus to please the Father. And what was that? Philippians 2.8. He was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Then what does it say? Wherefore also God has highly exalted him and has given him a name Above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every tongue shall confess. What? That Jesus is Lord. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. How do you like that? I, I get off track. And I of the things in the heavens and earth and under the earth. And every knee shall bow. I may have gotten it back on this one. Sometimes when I stop, I'm, I'm in trouble. To the glory of God the Father. What exalts the name of God? The obedience of his people. The issue of sin and its repugnance is too small in us. And the issue of obedience unto God is too small in us. Are you with me on this? So now Jesus in the garden is at the same place that Adam was. But you see, Jesus wins the day through his submission to the Father's will. And he wins the day for the Father's glory. How so? That finally there is on the earth the man who is the image of the invisible God. Who is the image of the invisible God? Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image. And we are image bearers, but he is the image. So finally, Genesis 1.26 is fulfilled. God has his man upon the earth. This is why God has said in two different places in Matthew chapter 3 and then Matthew chapter 17. It's also recorded in Luke. You are my son, my agapitos, the son of my love. In you I am well pleased. The father is pleased. Not only because the son is his son, but specifically I believe that the son 
is according to the Father's will. So never have this thought, God is not pleased with us. Oh, I beg to differ. God is pleased with us relationally, equally. God is pleased with us relationally. In other words, as a son or daughter, God's pleasure over us is equal. There is no distinction of pleasure of, you know, Sue's, what's your name again? (laughs) Susan being more pleasing than her husband. You can understand this, but with God, that doesn't happen. But all of us are equally pleasing to God all the time as relational sons and daughters. But we're not in relation to our activities. Correct? Fully pleasing to God. Colossians 1, 9, and 10. I pray, you know, that you be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and knowledge. I forget my mind today. So that you may please God in all things. This is the man right here. This is the man who now lives in us. Upon Jesus' obedience to endure the cross, God's creative purpose for his people is fulfilled. Romans 5, 18 and 19. Jesus' one act of righteous, righteousness, and one act meaning the whole life, but crescendoing in this, not my will but yours be done. It leads to justification in life for all of us. So next week, we'll talk about the arrest of Jesus, and we'll see the effect and power of this submission prayer. So see you next week.